You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. So, uh, my name is Sonia Yudkoff, and I'm an associate professor of Yiddish studies in German, Nordic, Slavic, plus, and Jewish studies, and an affiliate of Krika. And it is my distinct pleasure to welcome today a longtime friend and wonderful colleague, Professor Tatiana Gershkovich, who is the William S. Dietrich Associate Professor of Russian Studies at Carnegie Mellon University. Professor Gershkovich's work has appeared in PMLA. Slavic and East European Journal, the Berlin Journals, and the Journal of the History of Ideas. She was recently awarded the Jean Barabtarlo Prize for the Best Essay on Abakov in 2019, as well as a recent recipient of the NEH Summer, Summer Stipend for her current book project, her second book project, The Legacy of Leo Tolstoy, Inside and Outside Russia, 1920 to 1928. Her first book and what she will speak about today, Art in Doubt, Tolstoy, Nabokov, and the Problem of Other Minds is forthcoming next week and we should mark their calendars October 15th from Northwestern University Press. I will leave it to Tatiana to narrate the arguments of this phenomenal work, which engages the aesthetic worldviews of Tolstoy and Nabokov, two very different authors equally concerned, as Tatiana shows, with skepticism, with the problem of other minds, with the ostensibly mundane, if infinitely complex desire to make sure that their art was and continues to be understood. I'll leave that discussion for the topic of the lecture and the Q&A. For what this brief bio does encounter, comes encounter, doesn't capture, I'll get my words, and what I would be remiss not to mention, what is admittedly rare, is something that anyone who has read Tatiana's work knows immediately, namely that she is an amazing writer. I want you to consider here University of Chicago, Bill Nichols praise for the book. Quote, there are many moments while reading this book, he explains, when a sentence is so finely wrought as to cause you to stop in order to appreciate it. He is not speaking of Tolstoy or Nabokov, but Tatiana. And I can confirm that what he says is true. Having been in a writing group with Tatiana for the past few years, I can speak for the other members of the group in saying that no matter how drafty the work is that she circulates, her argument is deft and her points do not sacrifice any complexity, whether she's talking about Toysot and Nabokov, emigre novels of the 1930s, or digital data mining, Tatiana writes about it eloquently. The wager of her academic inquiries, no less her academic prose, is that aesthetics matter in art and argument. And with that, let me welcome Professor Tatiana Gershkovich, who once again will be speaking on the subject of her forthcoming book, Art in Doubt, Tolstoy, Nabokov, and the Problem of Other Minds, and I will be our designated clapper. Thank you so much, Sunny, um, for that very kind introduction. Um, and thanks very much to my hosts at the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And to all of you for joining uh, this afternoon. I'm really excited um, and grateful to share this work with you. Um, so let me share my screen. Uh, so my book is Art and Doubt, Tolstoy Nabokov and the Problem of Other Minds. Uh, and it's out with Northwestern University Press. The book considers two authors central to the Russian tradition who seem to be radically opposed on matters of art. 
Tolstoy held that true art is immediately comprehensible to everyone. Art, he thought, was infection with feeling, and all that readers or spectators have to do to partake of this feeling is allow the artist to possess them. For Nabokov, true art is accessible only to a select, sophisticated group of readers who must, in their reading, be active and creative. He famously enumerated characteristics of these good readers. So for Tolstoy, as you see, uh, the good reader or spectator simply enjoys and plays. He does not exert himself, but rather allows the artist to possess him. And Nabokov uh, does insist that the reader must exert himself in a number of highly specific ways. And this is just the beginning for Nabokov, right? The reader should have imagination, memory, a dictionary, and some artistic sense. Tolstoy insisted that art be simple, sincere, and morally unimpeachable. These imperatives were reflected in many of the author's mature works, which drive toward, though don't always achieve, a stylistic asceticism. Tolstoy's late work, Alyosha Garshok, for example, tells of a humble young man who spends his life serving others and concludes after only a few pages with an unadorned description of his death. He said little, he merely asked for something to drink and felt a growing sense of wonder. Suddenly overcome with wonder, he stretched out and died. Nabokov, in contrast, declared that writers who extol simplicity are traitors, not teachers. His mature style is as Baroque as Tolstoy's is ascetic. The critic Mary McCarthy aptly described Pale Fire, Nabokov's Pale Fire, as a jack-in-the-box, a Fabergé gem, a clockwork toy, a chess problem, an infernal machine, a trap to capture viewers, a cat-and-mouse game, a do-it-yourself novel. Against the familiar opposition of these authors, I argue that their aesthetic worldviews and stylistic trajectories have something quite deep in common, and that they're really parallel flights from the same fear, the fear that their experience of the world might be entirely their own, private, and impossible to share through art. This fear has, of course, motivated a vast swath of modernist and postmodern artists, but what distinguishes Tolstoy and Nabokov and what I realized uh, has always drawn me to their work is that they don't despair. Both hold out hope that art can furnish a solution to their epistemic conundrum. Of course, their search for that solution leads them in opposite directions, Tolstoy toward rustic simplicity, Nabokov to Baroque complexity. But even the mere image nature of their conclusions points to the shared nature of the search, their relentless lifelong hunt for formal and stylistic means of making one mind known to another. In my talk today, I'll look at two short stories, Memoirs of a Madman and Terror, which demonstrate respectively Tolstoy's and Nabokov's skeptical affliction. I will point out how their engagement with skepticism, especially the so-called problem of other minds, differs from that of their philosophical counterparts. Philosophical skepticism is difficult to define succinctly. Different texts, periods, and traditions have defined it differently. For the purposes of my study, skepticism might be defined as doubt that our perceptions of the external world or of other people can grant us adequate knowledge of them. For a definition of the problem of other minds, I offer the following from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. 
how do I know or how can I justify the belief that other beings exist who have thoughts, feelings, and other mental attributes? Of course, if Tolstoy and Nabokov really doubted the existence of other people, they would not have written books for them. But neither would the philosophers who tend to dwell on skepticism precisely in order to overcome it. It's the same with these two authors. My aim here will be to demonstrate that the temptation and torments of skepticism and Tolstoy's and Nabokov's attempts to think and write their way out of it shaped their fiction in fundamental ways. In their works, as in a strain of thought extending from Stanley Cavell and Wittgenstein back into the early history of skepticism, Tolstoy and Nabokov recognize that skepticism resists refutation. It's worth dwelling for a moment on this modern philosophical tradition that brings skepticism's irrefutability into focus in order to then demonstrate how as artists, Tolstoy and Nabokov's response to this problem differs from that of their um, philosophical counterparts. For Tolstoy, Descartes' anti-skeptical arguments are exemplary of the futility of reason against skeptical doubt. Descartes, he says, rejects everything forcefully, correctly, and then resurrects it arbitrarily, dreamily. Spinoza does the same, Kant the same, Schopenhauer the same. Richard Popkin, the philosopher and historian of skepticism, echoes Tolstoy's assessment when he observes that Descartes set out to refute the skeptical notions of his day, but in the end, outdoubted his opponents. All that we take to be true, Descartes proposed, might be an illusion induced in us by an evil demon. Descartes attempts to refute this hypothesis through arguments for the existence of a God who would not deceive us were no match for the demon hypothesis, which Popkin calls his super skeptical weapon. Our idea of a God who's not a deceiver might itself be the work of the demon. As Popkin explains, Descartes agreed that we could never transcend the circle of our ideas. But the philosopher also asserted that refusing these quote unquote, merely human certitudes would be to entirely close the door to reason. In other words, the skeptic's radical doubt cannot be met by reason, but following this doubt to its end has too high a cost. Schopenhauer, an intellectual touchstone for both Tolstoy and Nabokov, likewise held that doubt about the reality of the external world and of other people, a doubt that ultimately terminates in the conviction that one is alone in the world cannot be disproved. But though irrefutable, the skeptical and at its extreme solipsist conviction was for Schopenhauer impossible. How can one go about the world convinced that only oneself is real and others are mere phantoms? As a serious conviction, Schopenhauer says, it could be found only in a madhouse. As such, it would then need not so much a refutation as a cure. Schopenhauer dismisses such radical doubt as a small frontier fortress. It is, as he says, impregnable but the garrison can never sally forth from it, and therefore we can pass it by and leave it in our rear without danger. But one might wonder with Wittgenstein whether Schopenhauer could in fact pass this fortress by. Wittgenstein, as Ernst Michael Lang explains, had reasons to understand Schopenhauer himself as a solipsist in spite of himself. Schopenhauer's arguments for our double knowledge of the self, both as representation and as well, appear aimed precisely at forestalling solipsistic conclusions. His philosophical edifice, one might argue, is a testament to the persistence of his skeptical doubt. The persistence of such doubts, their ability to survive the efforts of philosophers to disprove them, 
was a central problem for Wittgenstein and following him Cavell, both of whom acknowledged learning much from Tolstoy. So really this direction of influence works both ways. Um, the philosophers learn much from Tolstoy and Tolstoy learns much from the philosophers. Like Schopenhauer, Wittgenstein conceived of skepticism as an illness in need of therapy, not refutation. But he, more than Schopenhauer, admitted the gravity of the disease, the temptation to say only what I see or see now is really seen. Solipsism, skepticism at its limit, he regarded as a serious and deep-seated disease of language, one uh, might also say of thought. This indicates both the severity of the problem and the nature of Wittgenstein's proposed remedy. What the skeptic takes to be a metaphysical puzzle is in fact a misuse of language that creates misleading pictures of the world, such as, for example, the picture of one's body as a kind of barrier. Yet it's important to note uh, that Wittgenstein is keenly attentive to the difficulty of discarding the misleading pictures created by our misuses of language. Schopenhauer diagnosed the disease but didn't take it too seriously. Wittgenstein takes it seriously and undertakes to furnish a philosophical cure. A cure, of course, is not a refutation. If Wittgenstein's answer has to do with the skeptic's misuse of language, his quote-unquote discontentment with our grammar, then Stanley Cavell is interested in articulating more completely the nature of that discontentment. He argues that what the skeptic takes to be a limitation of our knowledge is in fact a disappointed metaphysical yearning. The skeptic laments our separateness from one another. Cavell does not foreclose the skeptic's line of questioning. At the same time, he places faith in philosophy's capacity to ease the skeptic's predicament by explaining why and how the skeptic conceives of metaphysical finitude as an intellectual lack. Cavell dedicates much of his work to this task, making use of not only philosophical argument, but also literary critical analysis. With his essays on Shakespearean tragedy, Cavell argues that human separation can be accepted and granted or not. Failing to accept it, as he shows with his readings of King Lear and Othello, has profound psychological and moral consequences. One can therefore conceive of Cavell's philosophical project as an attempt to bring us closer to acceptance. Tolstoy and Nabokov echo the insights of this philosophical tradition, which recognizes radical doubt about the world beyond the self as a persistent, often malign and self-reinforcing feature of the psyche. And they too go in search of a cure, but they don't believe that the nature of that cure will be a philosophical one and that it will be once and for all. Wittgenstein and Cavell, though attentive to the grip of skepticism, still believe that elucidating philosophical problems, skeptical problems, drilling down into the skeptic's use of language, articulating concepts such as acknowledgement, it's Cavell's concept, can help us with these problems. Tolstoy and Nabokov are less optimistic about such strategies of conceptual clarification. For them, being aware of the sources and dangers of one's skeptical yearnings does not make them any less potent. Despite the significance each author attributed to our human capacity for self-reflection, it does not for either Tolstoy or Nabokov present a way out of skeptical doubt. In fact, part of the difficulty is that reflexivity and the renunciation of habitual modes of perception, two occupational hazards for these two, uh, tend to give rise to doubt. 
even more than their philosophical counterparts, Tolstoy and Nabokov regard skepticism as an unshakable burden bestowed on us by the very same sensibilities and wishes that enable aesthetic and ethical achievement. Now, it might seem odd to stress the dangerous Tolstoy, famous for what Viktor Shklovsky called the technique of estrangement, recognized in abandoning habitual modes of seeing. Here is Shklovsky's famous theory of estrangement, which he develops by reading Tolstoy. And Shklovsky writes, automatization, that is our habitual way of seeing things, eats away at things, at clothes, at furniture, at our wives, and at our fear of war. An art exists that one may recover the sensation of life. It exists to make one feel things, to make the stone stony. The purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to estrange objects. The purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived. It's true that Tolstoy, like Nabokov, was wary of the social forces um, that adulterate perception, that habituate us, right? That um, compel us to see things, uh, to know things rather than see them, rather than perceive them. Tolstoy suspected not only social conventions, but language itself, uh, this kind of operation and ultimately dissimulation. Nabokov was less suspicious of language than he was of those who wield it cynically or clumsily. But for both of them, the perniciousness and insidiousness of these external forces were matched by the danger posed by our own minds, which in the very acts of keen attentiveness and reflexivity distort and eclipse the world, including most importantly, other people. Tolstoy and Nabokov knew the creative and moral potential of estranged vision, but each recognized as well that the perceptual process Shklovsky lauded for restoring the external world could also induce a skeptical outlook that paradoxically eliminated it again. Two stories of madness offer an initial glimpse into this dilemma, Tolstoy's Memoirs of a Madman and Nabokov's Terror. These short works illuminate Tolstoy and Nabokov's treatment of skepticism as a psychic state that can overwhelm us at precisely those moments when we attend most closely to our own perceptions. Memoirs of a Madman is a framed narrative recounting a series of episodes of estranged perception that culminate in religious illumination. Today, I was taken to the provincial government board to be certified, begins Tolstoy's unnamed narrator. The narrator restrains himself and keeps silent during the examination because as he says, I'm afraid of the lunatic asylum where they would prevent me from doing my mad work. He's declared sane though, as he explains, I myself know that I'm mad. The narrator perceives, uh, proceeds to give an account of his madness, which characteristic of late Tolstoy turns out to be not madness at all, but moral enlightenment. The narrator, a nobleman and a once savvy landlord has come to see his mistreatment of those around him. He repents at having treated them as the means to his own ends and specifically to financial gain. Each episode of estranged perception that brings the narrator closer to enlightenment also inspires unimaginable terror. The first episode, which occurs in a lodging house in the town of Arzamas, has its source in Tolstoy's biography. In 1869, while traveling, uh, like the narrator, to the Penza region to buy an estate, Tolstoy was waylaid for the night in Arzamas. 
and something strange happened to me, he wrote to his wife. In the middle of the night, suddenly I was overcome by anxiety, fear, and such terror as I have never experienced. The details of this feeling I will recount to you later, but this kind of torturous feeling I have never experienced and would not, God forbid, wish on anyone. Tolstoy referred to this episode as he drafted Memoirs of a Madman in 1884. And notwithstanding Almer Maud's sound objection to equating the madman with his creator, it seems likely the story captures something of the feeling Tolstoy could not express in his letter. The travel-weary narrator finds himself in an unfamiliar place, which for some reason he's compelled to survey with extraordinary attentiveness. A perfectly ordinary lodging house now strikes him as uncanny. He looks around his rented room, scrutinizing its features. It was a small square room with whitewashed walls. I remember being tormented by the fact that it was a square. It had one window with a red curtain, a birchwood table, and a sofa with bent wood arms. The narrator falls asleep and wakes up shortly thereafter to the horrible realization of his own finitude. Here I am, the whole of me. It is myself I am weary of and find intolerable and such a torment. I want to fall asleep and forget myself and cannot. I cannot get away from myself. The narrator feels oppressed by confinement within the self and at the same time fearful of the demise of the self in death. It is as though the hyper-conscious scrutiny the narrator undertakes just prior to his terror at being uh, unable to escape the self plays some part in catalyzing it. Wittgenstein, perhaps in part due to his reading of Tolstoy, likewise underscored this relationship between intense observation and the threat of solipsism. The second and third episodes of terror recapitulate the first, both in their emphasis on the narrator's acuity of vision and on his subsequent sense of excruciating isolation. The narrator travels to Moscow and finds himself alone in a hotel room, observing everything from the hotel smell to the blue wallpaper with yellow stripes on the partition in his room. He's racked by the same horror as in Arzamas. He asks himself, what am I afraid of? Why, what is it? Nothing, myself, oh nonsense. The final episode of terror occurs during a hun hunting outing. This time, snow has altered the look of everything and helped the narrator see what are otherwise familiar woods in a new and estranged way. He cries out, but all was still, no one answered. The final episode brings about the narrator's moral transformation, his awakening to something joyful, as he says, something joyful, uh, that he learns to understand in the final passages of the story. This once casual egoist comes to recognize the universal brotherhood of man. The central irony of the story is that the narrator's estranged vision persuades him of the brotherhood of man while also creating an abyss between himself and others. The narrator only escapes the asylum by obscuring the state of his soul from his supposed brothers. Henry Pickford in his discussion of this work points out that the narrator's dissimulation as well as the structure of his transformation endorses a Cartesianism that opens the door for skeptical doubt. The narrator, as Pickford explains, withdraws his belief from one set of external behaviors, those of the landlord, the traditional husband, and so on, and eventually invests it in another set of behaviors. Outward behavior is thus made suspect as an expression of internal states. I would add that the process that decouples the inner and outer is the narrator's keen attentiveness to his own perceptual experience. 
the separation between inner and outer uh, in turn fuels the skeptical fear that perhaps no outward sign is sufficient to reveal oneself to another. The obscure way the narrator conveys his ultimate spiritual conclusion makes this doubt manifest. Quote, if there's nothing to all that, it certainly does not exist in me. For Cavell, we can ease our skeptical predicament by recognizing the claims that others make on us and attempting to meet our responsibilities toward them. This is not to say, of course, that reflecting on our skepticism is always enough to show us what these responsibilities might be or how we can meet them. Still, self-reflection doesn't lead us in the wrong direction. For Tolstoy, on the other hand, the same self-reflection that reveals to us our responsibilities toward others also underscores our separateness from them and so amplifies our skeptical fears. Nabokov's story, Terror, shares much with memoirs of a madman, and as D.B. Johnson suggests, it may have been inspired by it. Nabokov's narrator, like Tolstoy's madman, experiences a series of episodes of estrangement from habitual modes of seeing, which culminate in what he calls a supreme terror, a special terror, at seeing the world such as it really is. He persists in the state as he wanders in an unknown city and is brought back to ordinary life when he receives news that his lover is dying. Johnson observes the resemblance between Nabokov's story and Tolstoy's in structure and content. Both authors give us monologues by, as he says, nameless men on the edge of madness who experience their most excruciating episodes of existential estrangement when they're away from home. Yet for all the similarities between Tolstoy's story and Nabokov, there's one crucial difference. Nabokov makes his narrator an artist. In doing so, he draws our attention to a connection between skepticism and creativity that's less evident in memoirs than in Tolstoy's more fully realized works, such as Anna Karenina, where the capacity for art making is often attributed to the same psychic state that gives rise to skepticism. Here in Terror, Nabokov attends to the same phenomenon. The narrator, a poet, first experiences a peculiar estrangement while writing poetry. He describes, quote, emerging from the trance of his task at the exact moment when the night had reached its summit and was teetering on the crest, unquote, and catching sight of himself in the mirror. He fails to recognize himself as if, quote, during the time I had been deep at work, I had grown disacquainted with myself. This estrangement from his own image is followed by an episode of estrangement from his lover. He composes while she sits darning a sock and quote, all at once for no reason at all, I became terrified of her presence. I'm terrified by there being another person in the room with me. I'm terrified by the very notion of another person, end quote. Though the narrator claims terror overwhelms him for no reason at all, it seems clearly related to the act of composition that immediately precedes it. The artist's work makes him particularly susceptible to solipsism. The narrator's last and most acute episode of terror, the experience he relates in the narrative before us, is not preceded by creative work, but is itself the stimulus for artistic creation. He struggles to put into words, excuse me, he struggles to put it into words, but nonetheless succeeds. Quote, I wish the part of my story to which I'm coming now could be set into italics. No, not even italics would do. I need some special, unique kind of type. Yes, now I think I've found the right words. I hasten to write them down before they fade. As in Tolstoy, the episode of estrangement entails an existential isolation. The narrator's mind, quote unquote, refused to accept 
the objects around him as things connected with ordinary human life. And consequently, quote, his line of communication with the world snapped. As the narrator puts it, I was on my own and the world on its own and that world was devoid of sense. But Nabokov's madman, no less than Tolstoy's, receives compensation for this devastating isolation. Only here that compensation is the artwork he now creates. Though Memoirs of a Madman is more openly concerned with moral questions, it is terror that explicitly draws out the moral consequences of estrangement's double edge. As long as the narrator's mind refuses his ordinary way of seeing, he occupies the position of the Schopenhauerian madman. Only he is real, others are only phantoms. Quote, I understood the horror of a human face, anatomy, sexual distinction, the notion of legs, arms, clothes, all that was abolished and there remained in front of me a mere something, merely something moving past. He grasps for some philosophical notion, some basic idea, some better brick than the Cartesian one. But in the end, it's only the death of a loved one that brings him back into ordinary life. He learns that his lover is dying and races to her side. Her death saved me from insanity, the narrator explains. Plain human grief filled my life so completely, there was no room left for any other emotion. Yet even in this moment of grief, Nabokov's narrator does not entirely escape the skeptical mode of thought that leads to his solipsistic crisis. He watches as his lover smiles weakly in her delirium and thinks that what she sees is not him, but his double, quote, so that there were two of me standing before her, I myself, who she did not see, and my double, who was invisible to me. And then I remained alone. My double died with her, end quote. The idea that the person the lover sees, the one she knows, is not him, but his double, betrays the narrator's sense that our closest companions are still far from us. We don't know them. Each of us lives in our own world and populates it with our own projections. The special terror the narrator experiences is not, after all, displaced by plain human grief. It simply acquires another guise. It's not so easy to pass by Schopenhauer's fortress. Moreover, Nabokov's narrator knows that with the death of his lover, he receives only a temporary reprieve from skeptical doubt. Quote, but time flows. I know that my brain is doomed, that the terror I experienced once, the helpless fear of existing will sometime overtake me again, and that then there will be no salvation. Unquote. How does he know that this terror will overwhelm him again? Well, because he continues to write. And the estranged mode of perception that sustains his creative work is also what fuels his terror. Like Tolstoy, and more so than Schopenhauer, Wittgenstein, and even Cavell, Nabokov fathoms the full extent of not only skepticism's danger, but also its implacability. Though I, neither author saw a philosophical cure for skepticism, both sought one in art. The work of thought is to lead us to see the futility of thought, Tolstoy wrote in his note on Descartes. No need to return to thought. There's another instrument, art. Nabokov too searched for a better brick than the Cartesian one and found one in his art. While skepticism cannot be thought or willed away, Tolstoy and Nabokov imagine that a certain kind of artwork can offer us relief from it, and they endeavor to create such works. Each of my book's chapters on key texts, including Anna Karenina, the Kreutzer Sonata, Haji Murat, The Gift, Pale Fire, reconstruct these efforts 
and trace the evolution of the author's artistic strategies for temporarily keeping skepticism at bay. So part of my argument is that in their reckoning with skepticism, Tolstoy and Nabokov cover much of the same terrain. And one might even say that they both tell the same story again and again. An introspective individual, keenly attentive to his own impressions, learns at last to recognize another's pain, or else calamitously fails to do so and leaves that recognition to the reader. Yet in their mature works, this shared content takes radically different forms. Tolstoy's search for simplicity, Nabokov's flight into ever-ramifying complexity. Uh, in closing, I want to look at two mature works of these two writers, apotheoses of their late style. In the fall of 1909, a year before his death, Tolstoy composed a series of very short tales, which Nabokov later dismissed as simple tales for the people, for peasants, for school children. One of them is called Songs in the Village. And it appears to be a little more than a sketch of peasant life drawn from Tolstoy's own impressions. The narrator, Tolstoy himself, he writes it in his own voice, uh, relates a morning in a village near his estate on which he witnessed the peasants bidding farewell to young army recruits. Throughout the narrative, Tolstoy attends mostly to the sounds and sights, to the pleasures of the music and the beauty of the young villagers who he describes in detail. Finally, his gaze falls on a tall spirited young man. What a fine fellow, I thought. This one will surely be assigned to some post in the guards. Standing nearby is an old peasant whom Tolstoy does not recognize at first. Prakofi, a hard worker struck down time and again by various misfortunes. Tolstoy asks him who the young man is, but the peasant does not answer his question. When he repeats it, Prakofi mumbles something and turns away. Tolstoy persists. I say, whose boy is that? I asked again and looked back at Prakofi. Prakofi's face crumpled, his cheeks quivered. He's mine, he managed to say, and turning away from me, uh, covering his face with his hand, he sobbed like a child. And only now, after these two words of Prakofi's, he's mine, I felt not with reason alone, but with my whole being, the full horror of what was happening before me on that, for me, memorable misty morning. The story ends here with Tolstoy's horror at his own voyeurism and complicity in a social order that steals children from parents and sends them to war. The moral lesson is clear, but there's an aesthetic lesson here too. Tolstoy suggests that the pain of a possibly permanent separation of parent and child is best communicated not with the many words he's spent drawing this vivid scene, but by Prakofi's simple phrase, he's mine. If you wish to say something, Tolstoy once wrote in his diary, say it directly. Nabokov's short story, The Vain Sisters, is anything but simple. The narrator, a Frenchman and instructor of French literature in a New England college town, takes a stroll through the streets of his town. He's particularly taken with the brilliant icicles drip dripping from the eaves of a frame house. After some wandering, he observes that the lean ghost, the elongated umbra cast by a parking meter upon some damp snow had a strange ruddy tinge. It is then that he runs into his former acquaintance, D, and learns of the recent death of Cynthia Vane. Cynthia's younger sister, Sybil Vane, had been the narrator's student and had died by suicide after a failed love affair with D. Despite his mild fascination with Cynthia, the narrator recalls their brief friendship after Sybil's death in a detached and mocking way. He disdains Cynthia's vulgar friends and metaphysical notions, her theory that, quote, her existence was influenced by all sorts of dead friends, each of whom took turns in directing her fate." Unquote. 
following his meeting with Dee, the narrator fears an encounter with Cynthia's ghost, which as he notes by way of conclusion, fails to take place. I could isolate consciously little, everything seemed blurred, yellow clouded, yielding nothing tangible. Her inept acrostics, maudlin evasions, theopathies, every recollection formed ripples of mysterious meaning. Everything seemed yellowly blurred, elusive, lost. But these final lines of the story contain a hidden acrostic that indicates the narrator's mistake. Nabokov had to spell it out for New Yorker editor Catherine White, who along with many other readers missed it. Icicles by Cynthia, meter from me, Sybil. In this hidden message, the Vane sisters claim credit for creating the lovely evening the narrator enjoyed the day before, the icicles, the ruddy shadow of the parking meter. The narrator had encountered their ghosts after all. As Nabokov puts it, the sisters gave him the gift of an iridescent day. Nabokov was pained by White's rejection, but by no means did he deem the story a failure. On the contrary, he extolled its virtuosity. My difficulty was to smuggle in the acrostic without the narrators being aware that it was there, inspired to him by phantoms, Nabokov explained. Nothing of this kind has ever been attempted by any author. Songs in the Village demonstrates the culmination of Tolstoy's drive towards simplicity. The Vane Sisters marks the outer limit of Nabokov's narrative pyrotechnics. Yet the central drama of these radically dissimilar stories is one and the same. A keen-eyed spectator capable of estranging habitual perceptions to see the world afresh fails, at least at first, to grasp what is most important, another person's pain. Cynthia Vane rebukes Nabokov's narrator for this failure after he has artfully skewered her friends. One of these ridiculed friends had heroically saved two people from drowning. Another friend whom the narrator describes as the romping and screeching Joan Winter has a child who's going blind. Each story ends with the recognition of pathos that had previously gone unnoticed. In Tolstoy, this recognition takes place within the narrative itself and the narrator partakes in it. In Nabokov, it takes place at the level of form and only the extremely adept or else tipped off reader partakes in it. The narrator persists in his blindness. Why render this same predicament in such dissimilar ways and why moreover condemn the other way of doing it? As I show over the course of the book, Tolstoy first pursued other strategies, but in the end concluded that rich prose and elaborate forms put the author's own virtuosity at the center of the work. The suffering that must be noticed and the reader who must notice it are always joined in such works by the author's ego, which distorts the process of recognition because it puts the reader on guard, is being manipulated. In self-defense, the reader's gaze turns inward toward his own agency or lack thereof, rather than outward as the artist wants it to, or at least as Tolstoy wanted artists to want it to. To create an artwork cap capable of puncturing the self-absorption that he believed to be at the root of skepticism, Tolstoy thus strips away anything that might distract or divert us, anything that might earn our wariness or even our awe. To Nabokov, nothing could be more suspicious than Tolstoy's putative simplicity. As he told his students, Tolstoy's style is a marvelously complicated, ponderous instrument. No major writer is simple. The Saturday Evening Post is simple, Journalese is simple, Upton Lewis is simple, Mom is simple, Digests are simple, Damnation is simple, but Tolstoy's and Melville's are not simple. 
What irks Nabokov is the pretense of a naive faith in the transparency of language in the tidy alignment of word and world. And it irks him most of all in the case of Tolstoy, who recognized better than anyone the failures of our communicative gestures and made such failures central to his art. Tolstoy's insistence at the end of his life that the simplest syntax can convey our deepest verities therefore strikes Nabokov as a betrayal not only of Tolstoy's talent, but of the skeptical anxieties and insights the two authors shared. Tolstoy seems to be shucking off the burden the two of them had borne together. No wonder Nabokov took Tolstoy's late simplicity or feigned simplicity so personally. These two conjoint indictments of egocentric artfulness on the one side and affected artlessness on the other point to the limitations of these two artistic strategies which when taken to their extremes, end up inducing again the same distrust they're designed to dispel. In some ways, the reception of Tolstoy's late work proves Nabokov's point and the reception of Nabokov's proves Tolstoy's. If Tolstoy really wanted to bind his own virtuosity and banish his ego, what do we make of readers like the symbolist poet Alexander Bloch who claimed his simple stories as ingenious? If Nabokov's extravagance was really in the service of the sentiment he wished to convey uh, and not what Tolstoy might call boastfulness, what do we make of the proliferation of books and articles that attend less to the sentiment conveyed than to the wizardry of the author who conveyed it? Are these failures of reading or writing? Perhaps we've simply come up against the outer limit of a writer's ability to avoid a reader's skepticism, to anticipate it, to outwit it. These two authors set out to find some formal means of creating the sense that in reading, we're accessing another mind. To create that sense, each had to subdue the reader's suspicion that they're being manipulated, which Nabokov did by absurdly heightening the degree of manipulation and subsuming it into the work, and Tolstoy did by trying to eliminate manipulation altogether. These techniques enjoyed uh, striking success and have had a rich afterlife. But here at their extremes, we see their limits. The skeptic who seeks perfect communion with another mind will always be disappointed. So too readers with novels. Though he did not respond to Tolstoy's simple tales, Nabokov found in Tolstoy's great novels precisely the sense that he had encountered a consciousness other than his own. It's this achievement that Nabokov celebrated in his 1928 poem, Tolstoy written for the centenary celebration of Tolstoy's birth. Against the background of politicized efforts by Reds and Whites alike to monumentalize the author of the Russian national epic, the 29-year-old Nabokov evokes a human-sized Tolstoy, a Tolstoy whom, as he writes, with a feeling that he's our equal, we might address by name and patronymic. At first, the poem speaker laments that Tolstoy's life, unlike Pushkin's, has not turned into legend. He blames insidious technology, the phonograph that still preserves the cadence of his voice, the archive of ancient films in which Tolstoy appears a nondescript old man of modest stature. These things deprive the author's life of mystery and create only a fa false sense of closeness. Yet there remains one thing we simply cannot reconstruct, no matter how we poke, armed with our notepads, just like reporters at a fire around his soul. The deceptiveness of these documentary traces is then implicitly contrasted with the feeling of proximity generated by Tolstoy's own works. The people he created, thousands of them, transpire incredibly through our own life, lend color to the distance of recall as though we actually lived beside them. 
Our sense of intimacy with Tolstoy, with Tolstoy's creatures, extends to their creator himself. The poem concludes by underscoring the ultimate impenetrability of the great author, who like Pushkin took his secrets with him when he died. Yet it's joyful. Tolstoy's art has brought Nabokov as far as art can to the brink of the knowledge he wants, knowledge of another person. Thank you.